So I think that there is so much liquidity that was available and it was crazy to me and in Hong all, Kong. In Hong yeah. Kong. Um, and I also found that a lot of the startup founders were younger mm -hmm. and they came from non-traditional backgrounds and a lot of them did study in the US. Mm -hmm. So they were taking what they learned in the US and building back in you know their respective areas. Yeah. Um, that was super important to me because I think that's America's competitive advantage is that we have this model of education that is disruptive, that encourages us to ask questions that a lot of systems don't. Yep. And then you're seeing people take that mindset and bring it back right. with them. And to me, I you know, there's a lot of conversation on that. There's obviously different nuances, right? Like of of people taking proprietary research from universities and bringing it back to China. Right. And I think this is where we need to have more conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, because one thing I also learned while in Hong Kong was this appetite for deep tech yeah, and not just the SaaS play, you know, scaling through SaaS, but really like engaging deep tech and investing at core things that there are, is going to be a payoff, but way later. Our guest on today's episode is Natasha Ahmed. She's a dual-use investor at Disruptive. Natasha and I met in college at the University of Texas, where we were both fascinated by the intersection of technology and culture. While I've stayed busy in Austin, Natasha went off to DC after school to work for the DOJ through UT's Archer program. She's had many other roles, including program manager inside of the DOD, running accelerator programs, including one in Hong Kong, and government affairs positions at private companies like Toyota. Natasha and I reconnected more than a decade since our college days at Fed Supernova, and we dove into our mutual work as dual-use defense investors. Welcome to Austinpreneur, our show about the stories that made Austin, Texas a global hub for startups. The show is produced by Capital Factory and hosted by me, Nick Spiller. As a reminder, by joining Capital Factory, you can plug into the ecosystem where the stories on the show were set. Learn more about us at CapitalFactory.com. Originally, I knew that I loved languages. I did a minor in Arabic. But I also had this desire to see how the world was being shaped by technology and corporations abroad. So a lot of tech companies now, for example, have the same GDP as certain countries. Mm. And back in my UT years, I was always trying to understand like what my role would be in that, especially in technology and business. Being a child of immigrants and being from a family that is very comfortable with small business, I felt like that was the way to, the startup world was really interesting to me. Mm. I just didn't know how to engage with that and also that role of defense and how defense will play into that. So I had this, you know, I had multi, multiple languages, right? I had, I minored in Arabic. I spoke Spanish, native Bengali, um, a little bit of Hindi. And I wanted to bring like that multicultural lens to how we view the global world, hmm. especially kind of the macro world. So through the Archer program, I had an opportunity to do a public affairs engagement at Department of Justice. 
And at the time I was assigned to be in the antitrust department. Mm -hmm. There were a few big cases, but the biggest one was actually the mergers with US Airways and American Airlines. But as public affairs, you're really navigating how the policy world looks at it. So it was a different lens, it's not really legal. But that was a great entrance into what DC was like. I thought I would spend my whole life in Austin and I really, really enjoyed just the nuances of DC and navigating DC. The way that DC operates is very different than the way Silicon Valley operates. And I find myself in my current role kind of helping merge the two. But DC is all about the ecosystem and the players. And people in DC really understand what not only each kind of agency does, the role that the Hill plays, the role that trade associations, OEMs, primes, there's so many different, not only acronyms and silos, but really when you're in DC, who are the people that are engaged and how do you bring them all together? Because I know that DC gets a rep sometimes, but most everyone in DC really wants to work together. And they want to get a mission and something done out of working together. And so I think just understanding, like working within the system, really understanding how the whole system works because it's really easy to cast a stone and say this person you know, is holding up something, but there's a lot, like funding is such a big process that engages executive office, the agencies, Capitol Hill, trade associations, understanding that line and how funding actually works. I think that was like the biggest takeaway I had um, in DC, like the colors of money and all of that. For example, O&M funding versus, you know, R&D funding within O&M, how much of it is for sustainment, how much do we spend on prototyping. All of these are codes that acquisition uses to help put a color on the money that they're funding for different, I guess, execution areas for the Defense Department. Right, they may have a lot of money. It's it's earmarked for particular purposes and you know, as an entrepreneur or anyone in this industry, you got to figure out how to, how to navigate use that, that money. Yeah, and, use it. And uh, the thing is, there's money in different pots across the board. And I think DOD has done a really good job now of understanding how everyone can leverage different lines of funding. Again, that's always going to be a push and pull and a balance between appropriations and also like what at a department level you know, these program offices can do. And people really are trying to learn how do we work together? How do we collaborate with this mission in mind? In August of 2020, Natasha moved to Hong Kong in the midst of the pandemic to lead a startup accelerator program. I'm fascinated by the firsthand look Natasha got into a startup community that we get little exposure to here in the United States. So I think that there is so much liquidity that was available and it was crazy to me and in Hong Kong. Um, And I also found that a lot of the startup founders were younger Mm -hmm. and they came from non-traditional backgrounds and a lot of them did study in the US. Mm -hmm. So they were taking what they learned in the US and building back in, you know, their respective areas. Um, That was super important to me because I think that's America's competitive advantage is that we have this model of education that is disruptive, that encourages us to ask questions that a lot of systems don't. And then you're seeing people take that mindset and bring it back with them. And to me, I, you know, there's a lot of conversation on that. 
there's obviously different nuances, right? Like of of people taking proprietary research from universities and bringing it back to China. Right. And I think this is where we need to have more conversation mm-hmm. um, because one thing I also learned while in Hong Kong was this appetite for deep tech. Yeah. And not just the SaaS play, you know, scaling through SaaS, but really like engaging deep tech and investing at core things that no, uh, that there are, is going to be a payoff but way later. Right. It's the same knowledge coming from our universities, but the startup community there is embracing these deep tech things while yes. you know, the Silicon Valley was building apps and SaaS. Yes. Things and, like that. And there wasn't a comfort to like, I guess I would say the risk, the appetite for risk, right? Mm-hmm. It's very easy to see how kind of the IoT world scales and how you get the unit economics down with something like an app. But really, how do you work as a deep tech startup and engage something that's a little bit more hardware focused, but also might also have an intelligent overlay on top, which is I think AI is starting to do that. Did it seem like it was, did they have longer time horizons on the funds there? Was it a similar, how how are the, the venture funds, the venture capital structure there compared to here? So structure is very similar, but I see a lot more family offices that mm. are making one-off investments. Okay, and in early stage startups? In early stage. Yeah, so and most family offices here will really just, you know, you got later. a 10 million in yeah. revenue, later stage, they'll write big checks, but it's just very hard for them to invest early stage most yeah. of the time. Yeah, there's a lot of blurred lines between what's a startup versus a state-owned enterprise mm. in China, in the Chinese model. And so when I was over in Hong Kong, what I learned was that these different economic regions, um, different there's a different tier level for cities when you're mm-hmm. in China. And so the different cities all have their own funding and allocation, and they want to drive more tech and innovations and growth, so they give incentives to startups. Similar to like the economic development agencies that we have yep. locally, right? Mm-hmm. But what's different is that funding is all centralized. It comes top down and really it's, so I saw like, for example, Shenzhen Mm -hmm. and the Southern region of China. Major manufacturing. Becoming the bigger epicenter. Yeah. Everything right now that Hong Kong is focused on is building out, it's called the Greater Bay Area, GBA. And the GBA is supposed to be China's Silicon Valley. It is going to be. China, Silicon Valley. And so there's a lot of money being put into there where these tiered kind of city structure appropriations is all aligned with that kind of focus. Hmm. And this is where family offices, a lot of them from state-owned enterprises, are putting their money into innovation and technology. And it's easier for them to do it because they see it as going to that growth center or the Silicon Valley of China. Like many conversations I had at Fed Supernova, part of Natasha and I's chat focused on outer space. She taught me that the International Space Station is scheduled to be decommissioned in 2030 without a replacement plan in place. Listen carefully here, as I believe the space sector is lifting off right before our eyes. So in 2030, the International Space Station is going to be decommissioned. And that's going to be a huge turning point for the way that 
the U.S. engages in space. A lot of commercial players, NASA has already done a good job of bringing in commercial players who will take over that ring and that torch. But in the future, commercial space will determine how we all play together. I think it's shaping out to be very interesting. There is a refuel of excitement on, for example, the Artemis program, which is NASA's program to go to the moon again. Um, but this time we want to see how we can engage space long term. So it's not just like, okay, we go somewhere, we put a flag down and it's done. But what is the value that space provides? And I think what's interesting now is understanding like space for Earth applications. So there's all this excitement about Earth Observatory and how different providers are giving us a view from space into the world and helping things like wildfires, for example, looking at grid infrastructure, something that Texas really struggles with, things like that. I think there's a lot of use cases being developed for that. And also now with the Space Force, um, there's a lot of energy and excitement about how we maneuver in space. And it used to be initially like space was the unknown. Mm -hmm. We've done a really good job of knowing more, but there's always something to be learned. So obviously I think research is going to always be a part of it. But now other than research, it's about access. Yeah. So with the cost of launch going down, startups are now able to access space a lot easier. And I think private capital has a really important role to play in opening that up, yeah. especially getting to lower Earth orbit, LEO, faster. And now, you talk, you asked me about geopolitics, right? Mm -hmm. We don't have enough launchers from the US. We don't have enough vehicles and opportunities to get into space. Mm -hmm. So that's going to be the next tranche, especially for the United States is our competitive advantage in getting to space yeah. and not being so reliant on, you know, outside launchers before, like some of the parts were Russian made and because they were Russian made and they decommissioned some vehicles, startups were not able to get into space. Mm -hmm. And even this also hindered like our satellites being able to get into space. So that's important, right? The opening of space, but I think how to make it more useful is understanding like how are we interoperable in space? Right. So like for example, is communication, understanding how communications technology is gonna be reformed right. through space. Uh, now that satellites are overcrowded in space, there's a sustainability piece of making sure that there's lack of collision in space and that you know our assets are protected we spend millions of dollars putting things up, can they stay there and you know be protected? I think the human mission is about us working together in space yep. and making sure that there's no bad actors in right. space. And so like actually, for example, one of the innovations, right? Like NOAA, um, the commercial office actually uh, had a ruling a few weeks ago and this affected a lot of satellites that were, provide that were providing Earth data and now there's no restrictions and now you're able to provide commercial data to other people. Before it was very like clear who you could or could not do that, right. provide that information to, yeah. and that limited your business model. But because NOAA decided they wanted to change that really helped. Yeah. So we have the ISS coming down. 
I think the is future. Is it going to come down like out of space or what are they going to do with it? So there's it some companies that are actually going to, some parts might be deorbited. Other players are going to take the ownership of maintaining it. Mm-hmm. So, for example, Voyager, Axiom, there's a lot of different players involved in making right. sure. Private sector. Private companies. sector. Yep. Got it. And it'll still be operational, like just under these private companies? Yes. So there's uh, Orbital Reef, right. which is a program through Blue Origin. Right. And that's going to be for DoD, but also there will be some spaces for commercial right. use cases. Right. So what's interesting to me is... There's now like this eagerness to share information. And before, I think like NASA, DOD, government kept that close by. But now they realize if they are able to share more information, then more gets done. So, to me, that's. Let the private sector do its thing a little little bit. Yes. Like, let the private sector do what it does best, which is innovate and figure out the business model and survive. Capital Factory entered the dual-use defense space almost by accident back in 2017 when Army Futures Command made Austin their home. Back then, very few investors would consider funding startups working with the DoD. However, with the DoD's new interest in dual-use startups who work with both the DoD and private sector companies, more and more VCs are becoming active in the space. I think the commercial world focuses us to learn how we can partner and build alliances. That's the core of the business model. And um, I think there's a narrative of understanding how our allies play into this. This is something I've always been really interested in. And I'm, and I'm seeing that shift of thinking, like for example, with the AUKUS and Quad dialogue. So are you familiar with AUKUS? No. So AUKUS is Australia, UK, and US. And that's a a pact. And it's like an alliance between these countries. And the first project that they're going to be focusing on is a nuclear submarine. And it makes sense for all those countries to be involved. The quadrilateral security dialogue, the quad, it involves India as well, Australia, the U.S. uh, And that will be very, very, very important as well in shaping kind of how we engage with different countries. So I think that, I think those to me are really like how we can see emerging technologies work with allied countries. And yep. Japan is also part of the quad. So it's right. Australia, yep. India, um, the US, and Japan. Right. I had heard of that now. I didn't know. Didn't yes. have my acronym. Right. Yeah. So you got exactly. really follow acronym, your acronyms right? in like, space. Again, DC world, my path to the venture capital world encompassed a lot of different kind of lenses. Zigzag. Zigzag, right? And so what I love to see is more people who come from different backgrounds who are non-traditional. And I also want to support non-traditional startups too. Right. So I want to make it my mission to help everyone understand how they can build for the mission. I want to engage everyone because before a lot of people were shying away from working with government. Right. And so I want to shift that mentality a little bit too. And I want to engage the nifty startups who would <laughs> never have thought of a use case for the defense world. Thanks for listening to this episode of Austinpreneur. Don't forget to check out capitalfactory.com to learn more about us and join our community. 
If you have thoughts about the show or ideas on how we can work together, reach out to me directly via email, nickspiller at capitalfactory.com. Shout out to the Capital Factory Dream Team for making this podcast possible, and special thanks to Aaron Handworker, who masterfully recorded and edited the show. Come back next week for a whole new episode. Mm-hmm.